so I wonder, when you heard that we were doing a sermon series on Song of Solomon, what your reaction was. Some of you have told me that you were quite excited. Others, uh, perhaps not so much. And honestly, when uh, Steve and I had talked about our sermon series on Song of Solomon, and as it was getting closer, I had some mixed feelings about it as well. It, It seems to me that this book is fraught with dangers on every side. Uh, It's a book of passionate, erotic love. You read it through the Bible, and then all of a sudden, whoa, where did this come from? It's a little bit different than much of the other parts of Scripture. Um, And the danger in preaching this book is that some people are tempted to take a, a cynical attitude towards this book, and therefore God's Word as a whole, because what we read in this book doesn't match what they experience in their lives. Um, I can understand this. As I read Song of Solomon this week, I I tried to imagine myself reading it to a woman who's been trafficked. You know, that's a big problem in the world today. It's a $10 million industry, even right here in D.C. It's horrible. Her body is not her own. The joy of intimacy is as far from her experience as a fish is from climbing a tree. Or or I imagine myself reading this book to a guy who's attracted to other guys, and he's not sure if he could ever responsibly take a wife, and he feels very, very, very alone. Or or I imagine reading reading this book to a couple who is so estranged from one another that uh, when they are in each other's presence, they get a hollow feeling in the pit of their stomach. And they've said so many hurtful words to one another that they're just not sure how in the world they can rebuild their marriage. Or or what if you read this book to a wife who's been betrayed by her husband? Or what if you read this book to a person whose years of singleness have gone on far longer than they thought they would? Or, Or what if you read this book to a young man or young woman who has a godly desire for marriage but has so given themselves to pornography that their brains are literally rewired differently. That's what pornography does, you know. And it's horrible. You see, when we read the Song of Solomon, we see two people who are naked and not ashamed. They feel no shame in each other's presence because they are clothed with the loving and affirming words from each other. They don't feel shame. They feel what the Bible would even describe as glory. And yet, for many people, our bodies leave us feeling exposed. We feel shame because of things we've done, things that have been done to us, or things associated with us. And so this book is difficult because it doesn't match our experience, and we wonder, therefore, do we really fit in God's plan? Am I left out? Am I forgotten? Or, this book could be dangerous precisely because it does describe your experience. This is the best sermon application you could imagine. The danger for you, then, is that you don't look beyond the gift to the giver of all good things. You don't see that a union with another person intimates toward the union that God wants for us to experience with him in Christ. In other words, you make an idol out of it. And friends, whenever you make an idol, whenever you have something becomes an idol, you destroy that thing, and it destroys you. So this book is fraught with dangers. And it's therefore my job in this series to 
come along from time to time and interrupt the series on the Song of Solomon and talk a little bit about the book of Genesis. We're going to do three different sermons on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And my goal is to ground the Song of Songs in the story of stories. That is the very best story of all. The story of creation, fall, redemption in Christ. Only if we position ourselves within that story can we really understand and apply the song. So, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1. It's found on page, can you guess? One! Yes, at the very beginning. Most Bibles, it's on page one. Don't have to wait for you to turn there, probably as long as I do when I say we're reading out of Amos or something like that, that I don't find unless I bookmark it ahead of time. Genesis chapter 1 on page 1. We're going to look at verses 26 through 31. Let's look at it together. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand this passage. Give us wisdom and insight. Apply it to our hearts. We pray that we would praise you and then image you and reflect you as we live out our lives in the distinct callings that you've given us as men and women. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is arguably one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. It describes the essence of who we are, of who you are, the most basic thing about us, and that is image of God. Image of God is who you are at the deepest fundamental level of of your being. Now, you experience lots of changes in your life, don't you? If you're not convinced of that, just wait a few years. It'll, It'll convince you. You go from being a child to perhaps having children. You go from being a student to out in the workforce. You start off single. Some of you get married. And most people, above 50%, get become single again. We change. We're not the same people who we were 10 years ago. But God's image does not change. What does it mean to be in God's image? Well, that is something that Theologians and philosophers have debated for years. There is much mystery. We will be care- must be careful not to say more than the Bible has allowed us to say. But there are things that God has revealed for us that we should know. To understand them, the first thing we need to do is to set this passage in its context. I didn't read all of Genesis chapter 1. 
Actually, Keith looked at that in Sunday school today, and if you didn't go to his Sunday school class looking at, at creation and how that fits with uh, you know, what we see, learning from Genesis 1 and creation and how that fits with science, I encourage you to come in the next couple weeks as he talks about it. But if we had looked at the rest of Genesis 1, and hopefully you have your Bibles open to it, you see that the, the, the first part of Genesis 1 describes God creating everything that exists. God made everything. It's all made by him, and therefore, he is the ultimate ruler of all. But then after God creates everything except for man and woman, then he describes how he creates man and woman. And that's the passage that I just read for you. And there are several things about that passage that would indicate that this creation of man and woman is really the main point of it all. It's what it's leading towards. First, Notice how many more words he used for the creation of man and woman than everything else. There are eight words to talk about the creation of light. Light, eight words. Fifty for the animals. Sixty for the sun and the moon and all the stars. That is, all the galaxies out there, everything that the Hubble telescope sees and can't see, and and everything out there, 60 words. 219 words for the creation of man and woman. And that's just in Genesis 1. Genesis 2 is an entire chapter devoted to the creation of man and woman. And we'll look at that next month, Lord willing. Clearly, the man and the woman are the main characters in this story. uh, Secondarily to God, of course. They are the ones who get the most lines in the story. They are the focus of attention. Notice also that in the creation of man and woman, we get inter-Trinitarian dialogue. That is, the discussion amongst the members of the Trinity. Look at verse 26. Let us make. I believe that that is a reference to the Trinity. God is one, but God is also three. And the three persons of the Trinity, often we see in Scripture, they talk to one another. Because they're they're, they're individual personal identities. They can have a conversation with one another. And this is the first time we see them deliberating amongst themselves, talking to themselves. Let us make man in our own image. So they put extra work into the creation of men and women. Now, don't get me wrong. All of creation is fantastic. God looks at everything and says it's good. But the creation of man and woman gets special significance. It's kind of like this. Years ago, I uh, enjoyed oil painting. Don't have much time for that now, but it was fun in high school. I did it. And one of the things you know if you've done oil painting is that not every part of the canvas gets equal amount of attention. Some parts can be covered in just a matter of seconds, and they look just fine. They're not the focus of attention. But other parts of the picture require hours, days even, of meticulous effort. And those are the parts of the painting that you want everybody to see, because they're what the picture is about. And so also God here is giving greater attention to the man and the woman. They are the crown of his creation. They are the pinnacle of his design. They are what he wants on full display in this world that he's made. And why? Because they are made in his image. Only man and woman are made in God's image. That is not said of anything else. Not even the angels. Only mankind is made in the image of God. Now, to understand what image means here, let's do a real quick word study on image. How is this word image used in the rest of the Bible? Well, a few times it is used in Genesis to refer to men and women being made in the image of God, like it's seen here. But then 
it's used throughout the rest of the Bible to talk about graven images, idols, that is. Can you think of any Bible stories that would involve an idol, a graven image? Well, one of the famous ones is after God took the people out of Egypt. Then then Moses went up on a mountain, and the people worshipped an image, a golden calf. And that was a really, really bad thing. You see, all the nations around Israel, they worshipped their gods. Uh, Say that in quotes, lowercase g, of course, because they're not true gods. They are simply figments of their imagination, things they invented. But they would worship these gods with images. That is, uh, objects made of wood or stone. And, and they, would, they would think that they would make these objects to represent the characteristics of this God. Therefore, this image would lead them into worshiping this God. So, for instance, a strong God might be worshipped with the image of a, a lion. Or the fertility goddess would be worshipped with the image of a woman. The image was supposed to represent something of the God's nature so that people would be drawn to that God, which of course didn't exist, but that was the thought anyway, through that image. Now, of course, God does not want to make, he does not want his people to make images of the false gods out there. Of course not. But, and this is very interesting, God, the God of the Bible, the real God, doesn't want his people to make images of himself either. And in fact, the whole golden calf incident right after the Exodus, you know, when they made that golden calf, they weren't trying to worship another god. They actually said, hey, this is the god who brought you out of Egypt. They were just trying to worship the one true god with an image. Why doesn't the real god want his people to make images of himself for worship? Well, a few reasons, one of which is that no... No physical representation we ever make of God captures who he really is. It's impossible to make something out of wood or stone or or any sort of picture that represents both God's love and his power, his, his holiness and his compassion. You just can't do that with an image. But there's another reason too, I believe. And that is that God has already put images of himself in the world that are far more dynamic than anything made of wood or stone. People, right? They are the image of God that he has put in creation. Therefore, when we look at people, yes, when you look back and forth, when I'm looking at you here, I am looking at images of God. You're looking at images of God. And we are supposed to be drawn to worship God because of the images of himself that he has put in the world. We are here to represent God. To show off something of what he is like. To show his characteristics into the world. That's why we're here. That's why he created us. That's not negotiable. That's not an option. It's not that some people could decide if they want to be really spiritual to be images of God. No. That's just what we are as human beings. We have no choice in the matter. We are made in the image of God. Now we see how this works. Uh, the ramifications of being made in the image of God in this passage. Because after God makes people in the image of God, what does he say? He says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock. Why can, can men and women be the rulers of the world? The answer is, they are made in his image. God is the ruler of the world. He is the creator of the world. He is the de facto one in charge. What does he do then? He makes people 
like him in his image, and then he delegates authority to them over the world so that God is ruling over the world through men and women. But I want you to notice something particularly interesting and important about the image of God, and this is where it connects with the Song of Solomon and uh, what we want to talk about here, and that is that God makes people in the image of God male and female. Do you see that here? You can't miss the fact. Verse 26, God says, let us make man in our own image. Some versions of that say mankind, and I think that's really the idea uh, here. It's probably a better translation. God is creating humanity, and then he says, let them have dominion. Well, who is the them? We see in verse 26. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. And then notice, verse 26, or 27 rather, Male and female, he created them. So God is creating mankind in his own image. How does he create mankind in his own image? He creates them male and female. That is how he creates man in his own image. He creates them male and female. What we have here is a fascinating interplay between uh, unity and diversity. Let me explain. God creates humanity in his image... And that is a unifying factor that binds them all together. No one is more in God's image than anyone else. And thus, there is ultimate equality. That's why racism is wrong. That's why nationalism is wrong. That's why it's wrong to look down on people who have more money than you do, or less money than you do, or more education than you do, or less education. That's why we protect all humans who are made in the image of God, those born and those not yet born. But right after God establishes the essential unity and sameness of all people being made in the image of God, he then establishes essential difference by creating them male and female. It's really hard to read this passage, I think, and not come away realizing that part of what it means to be made in the image of God is to be made male and female. Why is maleness and femaleness part of what it means to be made in the image of God? I think the um, is it because God is male and female? No, certainly not. But something else about God is reflected in him making us male and female. Let me show you what that is. We already looked at it, but we'll see it again. Does God say, let me make man in my own image? No, he says, let us make man. In our own image. And that means that God is not strict unity. He is tri-unity. Trinity. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is unity in diversity. You can't collapse the oneness into the threeness. It's not that God looks like he's one, but if you kind of scratch below the surface, oh, he's really three. Or you can't collapse the threeness into the oneness. Oh, God you know, looks like he's three, but he's really one. No, To use theological language here, both unity and diversity, oneness and threeness, are equally ultimate. So what does it look like for a being who is both unity and diversity at the very core of who he is to create people in his image? Answer, it looks like him creating them male and female. It's not the case that only men are really in the image of God and then he creates women as this sort of other thing. No, no. The Bible has no room for sexism here. 
Men and women are both created in the image of God. And there are all kind of some indicators in this passage that clearly show that they are equals. It clearly says that men and women are created in the image of God, therefore they both reflect God. Both men and women here in this passage are given the task of ruling over all of creation. Both of them are. There's no distinction. So there's, there is essential unity and equality, but there's also difference. Otherwise, what would be the point of him saying that he's making them male and female? And the fact that it says it right here shows that that is maleness and femaleness is a fundamental distinction in humanity. There are other distinctions in humanity as well, right? Some people are short, some people are tall. I look out at this wonderful crowd of people, nobody looks exactly the same. All kinds of differences. But the difference between men and women is something fundamental. It's something irreducible. You can't get behind it. There is not some gender-neutral image of God behind maleness and femaleness. We image God as men, and we image God as women. That's how it works. Now, there's so many implications that we could draw from this, and probably many questions you have unanswered. Uh, Email that to Steve, and he'll be glad to answer those for you. But I want to draw out four implications that have to do with what we see in Song of Solomon. Number one, if you're married, your spouse is more godlike than you realize. Now, I have implications for you if you're single too, but let me start with the implications for marriage. The person you're married to is made in the image of God. They are put here on earth to reflect God's glory. They are not put here on earth first for you. They are put here on earth for God, to image him. Have you considered that? And therefore, how you treat your spouse is a direct reflection on what you think of God. To use your superior strength or manipulation against them is to go against God. To disparage their needs and preferences and the unique ways that God has made them is to disparage God. See, if God's blessed you with a spouse, what he's doing is God is taking somebody who he has specifically fashioned to represent him in the world and saying to you, take care of this one for me. I think of a quote by C.S. Lewis that drives this home. He says this. C.S. Lewis says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of the kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy. No superiority, no presumption. We could apply this to any relationship. Your boss at work, the people underneath you at work, the waiter or waitress in your favorite restaurant, your parents, your children, the screaming infant in your house, or the house next to you. Sorry, neighbors. All are made in the image of God. But think about how this applies specifically to marriage. Here's the important part. 
The beautiful giving and receiving of love that we see in the Song of Solomon can only happen among people who treat each other as equals, who come to the garden respecting one another. The Christian marriage bed is a place for equals. It's not a place for one to try to outrank the other. It's not a place for manipulation. It's certainly not a place for abuse. And how better to achieve that perspective than to remember that the person put next to you is made in the image of God. That person represents God. God has more of a claim on that person than you do. So honor them. Respect them. If God has blessed you with a spouse and allowed you to know that person in an intimate way, recognize the seriousness of that. And recognize how knowing them, you are reflecting God's unity and diversity, his beauty. If you're not married, this has huge implications for how you might seek a spouse. There's no room for manipulation. There's no room for just trying to get what you want out of the other person. When you pursue a person for marriage you must approach them with the utmost respect and honor. This is a person made in the image of God. God has stamped his glory on this person. God has put his claim on this person. So no flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. This means you should absolutely not lead that person to sin. Don't act as if this person is yours to be with as you would in marriage before the actual time of marriage. Do not awaken love until it pleases I read an article this week about the kind of comments that men make about women in college. And I actually only read part of the article because it was disgusting. Those comments are about somebody made in the image of God. We must speak about one another with the utmost respect and honor. So how do you think about a person who you're attracted to? Well, the most significant thing about that person who you might be attracted to is not the particular features that might draw your attention or even their personality, but the fact that they are made in the image of God. Their image of God is the most important thing about them. And therefore, they deserve the utmost respect and honor. In other words, you can never reduce somebody to a mere body. And this is why pornography is so bad. It reduces people who are made in the image of God to mere objects of somebody's pleasure. And people are not objects. People are subjects who bear the image of God. And they must be looked at that way. So your spouse is more godlike than you can possibly realize. And if you pursue a spouse, pursue them recognizing that they are made in the image of God. Relate to people as they are made in the image of God. Okay, implication number two. Your spouse is different, and that's by God's design. Again, implications for singles here as well, but start out with with married. There's a fundamental difference between men and women. Our culture says that that's not true. Our culture says that the differences between men and women are socially constructed, and therefore they can be deconstructed and reconstructed in any way we want. But Genesis 1 says differently. It says that the difference between men and women is woven into the very fabric of who we are and woven into the fabric of creation. And let me explain this to you. Let me go back and look at the passage one more time. You still have your Bibles open to Genesis 1. The structure of Genesis 1 is complementary pairs that work together. So what do we have? We have light and we have darkness. 
We have the sun and we have the moon. We have the land and the sea. We have the waters above in the atmosphere and the waters below. Each of these are complementary pairs that only works when it works with the other. Each day, God creates a complementary pair that is meant to work together. And then on the sixth day, God creates what pair? Man and women. All of creation is structured around this idea of complementary pairs that work together. And then the crown of God's creation is the complementary pair that images him as the complementary pair. To blur the distinction between men and women is to, please understand, it's to fight against them being made in the image of God and it is to fight against the very fabric of creation. Because creation is structured around complementary pairs that, meant, that are meant to work together. And I think this shows us something important about how, from a Christian perspective, we should think of marriage. Marriage is to display the unity and diversity of the Trinity. And that's something that only a marriage between a man and a woman can do. There's a lot of talk this, these days about diversity. And we're told that to embrace diversity, we then need to embrace the idea of of same-sex marriage. And the pressure to do that is huge. But I think if we were to be true to the Bible, what we would say is actually we want to be all about diversity, diversity in a more radical sense. And that means recognizing that the union that God has made to form the, the foundation of society is a union of two people who are different and coming together. That's the diversity that undergirds all of society. And that reflects the nature of the Trinity. That's why we must affirm what the Bible says about marriage. But friends, let me warn you that you're being hypocritical if you affirm the Bible's view of marriage, but don't also affirm the goodness of the differences of your spouse, because that's the point of why marriage is the way it is. The biggest threat to marriage is not a ruling from a court, but from husbands and wives who don't respect one another and love one another in the unique calling and ways that God has made them. This also has huge implications for gender. I've talked to feminists whose dream is to eliminate gender as a category. They want a genderless world. And only in a genderless world can everyone be equal. And I think that's kind of the direction the West seems to be moving. How should we respond to this idea about eliminating gender? Well, the first thing we need is a right attitude. And I think we'll get a right attitude by thanking God for making us as a man or a woman. Thank him for that. I'm not saying that everything about being a man or a woman is always fun. No, we live in a fallen world, and we'll get to that in the next few sermons. But there is a goodness in God's design. And thank him for making you as a man or a woman. We'll pick up on this a little bit more, but let me say implication number three is that We've all failed, and yet there's still hope. I listened to a message about being made in the image of God about 10 years ago, and I was convicted that I was not living out my calling as a man in a responsible way. I was not loving my wife as I ought to. And I look back at my own life and my failures in imaging God, and they're they're too numerous to, to count. And I suspect that I'm not alone. I suspect that this is an area, if we explored all the implications of it, we would see 
in our own lives, all kinds of ways that we don't measure up, all sorts of failures. And the truth is that even though we are made in the image of God, we've rejected God. We still wear the sign above our heads that say, I'm here to represent God. Sort of like one of those signs that employees wear, ask me about, you know, ask me about God, I'm here to represent him. That's the sign we wear by virtue of being made in the image of God. But we present a gross and distorted picture of who God is. And because we hate God, we treat those who are in his image poorly. And, and our interactions between men and women is a place where our image of God is, is sort of in ways most put on full display. And yet that is sometimes where there is the most distortion. So what hope is there for us? Well, I think you can imagine that God is rightfully angry at us since we've distorted his image. We've presented a gross and disgusting picture of who God is, and we've treated people who are in his image with contempt. And therefore, the Bible says it is just and fitting for God to send us to hell for all of eternity. And yet, in God's amazing love, he sends his son into this messed up world. His son becomes like us. His son takes on our image, which is really his image. But he doesn't do what we've done. He's actually a perfect picture of who God is. He truly reveals the image of God. He lives in such a way that we can look at him and know who God is. But then he dies on the cross to take the penalty that we all deserve. On the cross, Jesus takes our shame. He's treated like pond scum. He's abused. He becomes an object of scorn. But then he rises from the dead in the perfect, renewed image of God that he has created us to be. He renews our nature. And he invites us to share with him in that image of glory. And to do that, we must believe in him, as the Bible says. We must believe into him. We must put our trust and hope in him and believe him for who he says he is. And the Bible talks about our salvation in terms of being renewed into the image of the Creator. That's what it means to be saved, to be remade into the image of God vis-a-vis the image of Christ. Yes, we've all fallen. Yes, we've messed things up pretty badly. But in Christ, we are transformed into the true likeness of God. And that transformation will ultimately obtain in heaven, but it begins here on earth as we trust him and become like him. And friends, no matter how much you've messed up in the past, there's hope that in Christ, you can be transformed into the image of Christ. No more shame, only glory. So friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, oh, please, believe in Christ and find forgiveness and transformation into his nature. Now, finally and briefly, the implication here uh, for us is let us build a community that reflects God into the world and particularly reflects God into the world as we are made in men, as men and women. I said that the way we respond to our world's confusion on gender and marriage begins with the right attitude, where we thank God for making us as men and women. But from there, it should proceed to then us respecting the differences among us. We should build strong marriages where the differences between men and women are upheld in the context of mutual respect. We also must be a community that says neither that singleness is the way to go, because marriage is too hard, nor says that marriage is the way to go and we despise singleness. 
Let us respect that both are callings that God could have us in. Let us recognize that our identity is rooted in being the image of God, not as being married or unmarried. And friends, I submit to you that this kind of community can only happen really in the church. Honestly, it makes sense to me why our culture is going the way it is with marriage and gender. Because they know not of the Trinity, and they know not of the Gospel. It is only with an understanding of the Trinity where unity and diversity are equally ultimate, where one and three are upheld as being foundational, that a distinction between men and women does not result in one being superior to the other. It is only when we base it on the Trinity that that we can have the mutual respect that is required if we're going to recognize a distinction between men and women where the differences do not result in shame and violence and pain, but in love and voluntary submission and in glory. And only with an understanding of the gospel can we understand that even though none of us have lived up to be the image of God as male and as female, there is still hope in Christ. This doesn't mean that we ignore sin or shrink back from proclaiming what the Bible calls us to. But it means that we go back again and again to the Savior who died for us, that he might transform us back into his likeness. And friends, this is a mission that we need each other for. It's not something the men can do all on their own. It's not something the women can do all on their own. It's not something the married can do all on their own or the unmarried can do all on their own. If we're going to be a community that respects each other with the differences and builds upon the Trinity and the gospel, we need one another to do that. We are all broken images, but in Christ we can be renewed back into the image that God has made for us through the praise of his glory. Let's pray.